Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most important Americans who has probably ever lived, and certainly one of the most important American founders. Uh, So important, he's on the currency, Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) His name is more familiar to us today, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he is better known to us today than he was to previous generations. And to help us understand more about this amazing American and his contributions to the Republic, I'm joined today in our conversation by an old friend of mine and an old friend of the Ashbrook Center, Professor Steve Knott. Steve has recently retired as a professor from the United States Naval War College, where he taught a number of courses on the American founding and strategy. He's also been involved with the wonderful Miller Center at the University of Virginia in their presidential project, um, a terrific organization there that he has been engaged with for a number of years. And of course, Steve also has been associated with Ashbrook and our Teaching American History programs. He's taught in our Master of Arts in American History and Government and also our Teaching American History seminars, taught courses on the founding, taught courses on Washington and Hamilton, on the presidency, and in things like presidential war powers. So we have with us an expert who has written a terrific book that I wanna recommend to you all on Alexander Hamilton, but also his most recent book. And I think, Steve, I've got the title right. It's entitled, Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. Um, For our listeners, tell us just a little bit about this wonderful new book of yours. Oh, thank you, Jeff. And let me just start off by saying it's always a pleasure to see you and to be with my friends from Ashbrook, uh, from the Ashbrook Center. Uh, my book on President Kennedy is a very personal account. I grew up in a Kennedy worshiping family in Massachusetts and then moved rightward in my own political beliefs over time uh, and began to question a lot about, about the early myths that I was told about JFK. So, Uh, intertwined throughout the book, which looks at Kennedy's major decisions in foreign policy and domestic policy. I also recount my own journey uh, in terms of wrestling with the Kennedy legacy. And I hope at the end, the reader will find what I would think is a more nuanced, uh, balanced account of John F. Kennedy, the president. So uh, that, that, that was my goal, Jeff. Interesting. And coming to terms with John F. Kennedy, where can our listeners get the book? Anywhere? They purchase their books? I would think so. I mean, the quickest way is probably online, although I'd love to support our local bookstores, local booksellers. Uh, but Amazon, Barnes & Noble both have it readily available online. 
Well, terrific. Let me again commend it to our listeners. I have read it, and I think it's a wonderful and unique combination of, as Steve said, the personal with the depth of scholarly insight that will be rare to find. So let me recommend that to our listeners. Uh, but Steve, I know you originally from your work on Alexander Hamilton and the American founding. Um, the, the musical Hamilton has obviously revived Alexander Hamilton as a household name. Uh, people sing the songs, they know the tunes, they see the show, but they don't necessarily therefore know or have deeper insight into Alexander Hamilton, the real historical character. Why is that so important to know? I, I think it is very important to know, Jeff. And while I've seen the musical three times, my wife loves it. Um, it it's not a particularly accurate portrayal of Alexander Hamilton. I mean, it gets, it gets quite a few things correct, but I think it overemphasizes Alexander Hamilton's uh status as an immigrant of course he was an immigrant um and it affected him deeply that some americans resented that fact uh but i wouldn't necessarily say that he's an advocate for open borders for instance and that and i think the musical kind of suggests that the musical also suggests that hamilton was something of an abolitionist and while i do believe that hamilton had a very good record on racial matters, particularly for his time. I think that perhaps is overstated as well. He certainly was not Frederick Douglass. He believed in union first and then dealing with these contentious, divisive issues uh, secondarily. And I think perhaps the musical gets that wrong. And that's partly due to Ron Chernow, the author of the Hamilton biography, that Lin-Manuel Miranda took his inspiration for. And the final thing I would mention, Jeff, that I think it gets wrong about Hamilton is I've always tried whenever I talk about Alexander Hamilton to emphasize the fact that while his accomplishments were remarkable, none of them happened without the mentorship of George Washington. The musical implies that, I think maybe more than implies it, but had I had the talent to write a hip hop musical about Hamilton, I would have given a little more play to the Washington-Hamilton relationship and the important role that George Washington played in making Alexander Hamilton's vision come to pass. Take, take us back to the coming of Alexander Hamilton to America. You said he was an immigrant. Maybe many of our listeners know his biographical story, but probably a lot of us don't. What's so compelling about Alexander Hamilton's biography? That's well, an incredibly compelling story. And the fact is, uh, he was an immigrant. He came to the United States at a very young age, probably somewhere between 14 and 16 years old. I'm hedging a little bit, Jeff, because we don't know exactly when Alexander Hamilton was born. Uh, could have been 1754, 1755. 1757. But nonetheless, it was born, he was born on the island of Nevis, spent a good part of his childhood in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and then through the help of some benefactors on St. Thomas, uh, they raised money to send Alexander Hamilton to the mainland uh, to get an education. He had originally hoped to attend Princeton University, or what is now Princeton University, at that time, it was the College of New Jersey. 
uh, but he wanted to graduate uh, quickly. Uh, he wanted, I think, two and a half or three years. Uh, John Witherspoon, the person in charge of Princeton, said, no, that's too fast. So Hamilton, typical Hamilton, went back to New York City and was admitted to King's College, which is now uh, Columbia University. Uh, they agreed to his hastened graduation schedule. Uh, and it's there in New York that he gets caught up in the revolutionary fervor of 1773, 74, 75. And he becomes a pamphleteer on the, in the cause of revolution. Is that it's surprising? Can I just, um, that, that's curious to please. me because you've got someone coming from the Caribbean. You've got someone, which is, I'm assuming those parts of the Caribbean are part of the British Empire. So he's migrating from one part of the British Atlantic, as people sometimes call it, to another part of the British Empire in the Atlantic. Um, those roots do not immediately suggest to me revolutionary sentiment. No, excellent point, Jeff. And I think what's important to understand is that Hamilton had a limited amount of formal education in the Caribbean, but some of that education that he had was of reading what we would call the Enlightenment authors of the day. And Hamilton is very much caught up in this Enlightenment thinking uh, that the rights of man are not granted by the state, but are in fact granted or given to us by, from the hand of God. I mean, that's a, almost a direct line from one of Hamilton's earliest writings. So he was a child of the Enlightenment, perhaps not as well read as a Jefferson, uh, but he got his hands on any book he could find while living in the Caribbean, again, being self-taught. And when he comes to the United States, he immediately takes to his new home uh, and becomes committed to the cause. And But you're right, Jeff, it's a remarkable transition from somebody who uh, spent the bulk of his early life living in the Caribbean. The When the seventeen mid-1770s roll around, he's in New York City, as you said. Um, what's New York City like? Is it a loyalist place? Is it a revolutionary place? Is it split? What's the atmosphere that young Alexander Hamilton is in? It's very much split, Jeff. And in fact, at Columbia or King's College itself, there's a real split. And in fact, the president of King's College, while Hamilton is there, a guy by the name of Miles Cooper, uh, is a devout Tory, if I can use that expression, uh -huh. uh, to, to the point where uh, for, the, for those Americans in and around Columbia University, Miles Cooper is be, it begins to be seen as something of, a, of an enemy. And there's actually an effort at one point that could have turned violent to drive him out of the president's home, uh, perhaps even tar and feather him. And interestingly enough, Alexander Hamilton, who's not a Tory, and in fact is devoted to the revolutionary cause, Hamilton rises to Miles Cooper's defense and prevents this mob from uh, bringing harm to the president of Columbia. It's a remarkable occasion where this young, you know, probably 20-year-old stops a mob of which, you know, has a goal that he's in favor of from engaging in illegal activities. And I've always argued, Jeff, that this is typical of Hamilton. While he was a revolutionary and supported the glorious cause, he's a sober revolutionary. He's not an extremist, and he's a believer in the rule of law. And you see that in New York City and at Columbia University, in 1774, 75. 
how does he first then connect with the the patriots the revolutionary forces and in particular come into contact with general washington so he raises a company of artillery again he's probably 20 or 21. amazing uh, <laughs> yeah it is amazing he gets a hold of any book he can find uh, at King's College or in the bookstores in New York City that will teach him about military strategy, but particularly about artillery, uh, this uh, kind of new, newfangled technological development. Again, typical of Hamilton, self-taught, absorbs information incredibly fast. Uh, and so he brings himself up to speed on artillery tactics by reading. And he creates an artillery company. I believe they call themselves the Royal Oaks or something to that effect. Uh, and he marches them. He trains them. He teaches them artillery tactics. And it's during the Battle of Long Island in August of 1776, which was a real disaster for the continental cause. But one of the positive developments to come out of that battle is the performance of Alexander Hamilton and his artillery unit which provides cover for George Washington's army when they are retreating from the Battle of Long Island. And it's at that point that Hamilton comes to the attention of General George Washington, either through Washington observing Hamilton in action, we're not quite sure, or through the recommendations of Generals Henry Knox and General Nathaniel Green. But nonetheless, Hamilton, as I said, is one of the few positive notes to come out of that potential debacle. And from that point on, uh, shortly after that point on, Hamilton is at Washington's side. What does he do for George Washington? So he's appointed a staff officer by General Washington on March 1st, 1777. And he immediately becomes part of Washington's family, as Washington referred to his young staff officers. And Hamilton shines quite quickly stands out quite quickly as an officer who uh, can put in a remarkable amount of time. The guy had unbounded energy, but he also developed very quickly a kind of rapport with Washington and Washington's mind, if you will. And so a number of the directives that are going to be written throughout the war are actually in Alexander Hamilton's handwriting. Um, he, he, he and Washington become now, granted, Washington is, is his superior. We're only talking about Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Hamilton here. But with that said, the two develop, as I said, a kind of rapport and understanding of where General Washington wants to take this army and take this cause. Now, the one point of friction between the two during that war is that Hamilton is itching for a combat role. He's a young guy. He wants to make his name for himself in combat. And the role of a staff officer usually finds you, you find yourself behind the lines. Hamilton wanted to be on the front lines. They do have a brief falling out. But finally, at the Battle of Yorktown, Hamilton gets his chance to act heroically, which he does, uh, and serves as uh, you know, Hamilton's role at the Battle of Yorktown is quite impressive and quite um, uh, a major part of the American victory at Yorktown. How it's interesting to me that Hamilton struck up a rapport with Washington, as you said, because Washington was famously um, not a person you think people would have warm relations with. And I don't know if Hamilton's relations were warm, but 
lots of people, as you know, found Washington a little easy to admire, but not so easy to engage and get to know. Yeah, that's a terrific question, Jeff. And perhaps the term rapport was a bit too strong on my part, uh, because Hamilton did occasionally express a certain irritation at George Washington's irritability. Uh, oh, really? I mean, Washington had the, rate, the weight of his wor the world on his shoulders. And I think occasionally he did take that out on some of these staff officers. So I would never describe the relationship, particularly at this point, as one of friendship. Again, rapport may have been the wrong term to use, but Hamilton did develop a kind of keen sense of the general's mind, uh, and that's going to serve him well as a staff officer. But they are, they are not friends by any stretch. One is a general, one is a lieutenant colonel, and that lieutenant colonel is clearly a subordinate. Do we have anything from Hamilton from this era of his writings or what we know of him developing admiration for any of Washington's particular qualities? What did he find most admirable about Washington? I think the thing that Hamilton found most admirable, or one of the qualities he found most admirable, was Washington's persistence, Washington's determination. And although I think Hamilton may have balked or had some uneasy with uneasiness with this concept, he also grew to appreciate Washington's obedience to civilian authority. Nobody other than George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and some of the other staff officers had as much insight into the failures of the Continental Congress and then the Confederation Congress in terms of delivering the supplies, the food, the manpower needed to take on the world's greatest superpower. And Hamilton is at the core of this, and he really grows to appreciate Washington's perseverance in the face of these endless congressional delays. But nonetheless, Washington remains committed to the notion of civil control, civilian control of the military. Now, again, Hamilton, I think, is less um, absorbed with it or less taken with this concept. But I do think he learned some important lessons from Washington, not only in terms of perseverance and determination, but ultimately a kind of respect for the role of civilian authority in a system of self-government. So what happens to Alexander Hamilton after his heroism at the Battle of Yorktown? The Revolutionary War comes to an end, obviously, and we have the treaty in 1783. What's Hamilton doing then after the American Revolution? He's doing a couple of things. Well, he gets married, for one thing, to Eliza uh, Schuyler, to the prominent Schuyler family in New York. In New York. Uh, but he also practices law for a time in Manhattan. Uh, this is where he comes into fairly steady contact with another young war veteran, an attorney named Aaron Burr. Uh, but he's also briefly involved, he's a member of the Confederation Congress. And he, along with Washington and along with James Madison down in Virginia and others, are growing increasingly uncomfortable with what they see as the inability of the Articles of Confederation to secure the peace that people like Washington and Hamilton had sacrificed so much for uh, to win in terms of defeating the British. We're now in danger of losing the peace. 
And Hamilton is disturbed by that. The other, and I refer to them as nationalists, Madison, Marshall, uh, Washington, of course, are also disturbed. And Hamilton, working in concert with James Madison, is going to press for something called the Annapolis Convention, which will in turn press for the calling of a convention in Philadelphia to meet in 1787 and to perhaps revise the failing Articles of Confederation. So Hamilton is not giving up. He's remaining very much in the public eye, even though he has a young family and he's trying to make some money to keep that family afloat, he's still very much engaged in the public square. Hamilton comes into the Philadelphia Convention then, as you say, um, a committed nationalist, thinking about, even though he's obviously rooted in New York, thinking about America, uh, thinking about the, the situation of America as an American rather than simply a New Yorker. Um, his role in the Constitutional Convention, there's been a lot of scholarly work on this, as you know. There have been a lot of disputes. Hamilton himself later has disputes with Madison, accusing Madison of um, perhaps falling under the influence of Thomas Jefferson and changing some of his views that he seemed to articulate in the convention and betraying those nationalist views, at least in Hamilton's view. What's Hamilton's role in your mind, most important role perhaps, at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia? Well, he, he's frustrated there, Jeff, because he's representing the state of New York. There are three delegates from New York. Uh, Hamilton is outnumbered two to one uh, by appointees of Governor Clinton of New York, who's essentially an anti-federalist and who's not interested in strengthening the powers of the central government, thinking perhaps that it would come at the expense of his own power as governor of New York. So Hamilton's role at the convention was both frustrating for him, but it also he's limited in a sense by the fact that he's continually outvoted by the two Clinton appointees. Now, having said that, however, I think Hamilton does play a key role in staking out an extreme nationalist position, extreme in the view of most delegates at the time and perhaps most folks today. Uh, Hamilton delivers a speech in June uh, 1787 at the convention in which, among other things, he calls for a president elected for life. Uh, that's something that's a little too hard for even the most devout nationalists to accept. <laughs> I can imagine. But I think the contribution there, Jeff, is important in that by staking out this somewhat extreme, well, probably not somewhat, this extreme position, uh, he makes some of the more moderate nationalists or consolidationists or centralizing proposals seem far more palatable. And I'm one of those scholars who actually happens to believe that that was a tactical maneuver on Hamilton's part. Uh, he may well believe that a president should be elected to life, pending good behavior, subject to impeachment. Um, but uh, nonetheless, tactically speaking, I think it did have the effect of making some of Madison's proposals, for instance, seem far more palatable. And Hamilton seemed to also articulate some views at the Constitutional Convention about states and the proper role of states. Yes. What's, what does he say? Well, he, he, he tries to come off both in the Constitutional Convention and in his arguments in the Federalist Papers for ratification of the Constitution as somebody who's not intent 
on on you know eliminating the powers of the state of subjecting the states to the heavy hand of a national government now this is where some critics and i think they probably have some justification have argued that hamilton was not completely upfront uh for instance in the federalist papers he argues that the national government will focus strictly on matters of war and peace foreign relations international trade uh, perhaps some role in facilitating interstate commerce here at home but it's a somewhat narrow agenda or portfolio and again he tries to reassure the states they have nothing to fear um you know i have to confess i'm some i'm still somewhat torn on this issue i don't think hamilton wanted to see the states eliminated he's still enough of a enlightenment thinker if you will in believing that the states are an important part of a system of separated powers and checks and balances but if you know push comes to shove i do have to confess that he is the person perhaps most responsible among the founding generation for sort of setting the united states on a path where the united states government is going to have to be a force to be reckoned with um he also of course organizes what we now not call the federalist papers or the federalist which as they as our many of our listeners will know from reading them are addressed to the people of the state of new york why is hamilton organizing this effort in his home state of new york once the constitution has now been sent out to the states because it was a real uphill battle jeff in new york due again to governor clinton and his forces who were opposed to ratifying the proposed constitution and hamilton leads the charge when he returns to new york upon the completion of the constitutional Con convention he's the one that's going to lead the charge for ratification in new york i actually think this is one of his more <clears throat> excuse me heroic and important contributions uh to the early republic because if new york had not ratified and it looked by the way in the late summer and fall of 1787 that new york would not ratify then you'd have this incredible barrier between the new england states and the mid-atlantic you'd have a divided nation you'd have the important port city of new york not part of the union i mean the effects would have been devastating hamilton decides as part of his effort to win ratification in new york to publish a series of essays beginning in october 1787 and extending into the summer of 1788 85 essays in all 51 of those 85 we believe were written by hamilton and they are a very important as your listeners know uh argument on behalf of ratification and he enlists the efforts of james madison and of john jay a fellow new yorker jay unfortunately has to bow out pretty quickly due to illness but the Madison-Hamilton duo, uh, in terms of authorship of the Federalist Papers, is going to provide some assistance. I don't want to overstate the impact of the Federalist Papers. I think some folks do that. Uh, there's not a lot of solid evidence to support the idea that they made a significant difference. But I do think they helped the pro-ratification forces frame their arguments, both in New York and in Virginia and in some of the other states and of course to this day as you well know jeff the federalist papers are routinely cited in congressional debates and supreme court decisions 
uh, as a sort of fundamental American document. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. So once then, of course, the Constitution is ratified and Hamilton's forces are successful, including in New York, although I think the vote was close in New York. Very close. Um, What does Alexander Hamilton do then from 1788 in the next few years? So fairly quickly, uh, after the bruising, it was a bruising battle to win ratification. I think New York does not ratify until June, late June of 1788. Um, but after George Washington is selected by the Electoral College as our first president under this new constitution, one of his first nominees is Alexander Hamilton uh, to be Secretary of the Treasury. And uh, now I do need to point out Uh, It appears that Washington at first might have been interested in Robert Morris, who had been the treasurer of the Continental Congress for a time, uh, excuse me, the Confederation Congress for a time. Uh, But Morris begged off, which was probably just as well for the fate of the Republic. Uh, And Washington appears to have turned to Hamilton as something of a second choice. But Washington was well aware of Hamilton's propensity to Uh, to be a quick study, and he was well aware that one of the the subject areas that Hamilton had mastered was uh, economics and finance. Uh, Again, primarily self-taught, but Hamilton is a student of the leading uh, political economists of the day. He knew exactly, having been a staff officer for George Washington, how important it was to finance a war and to equip and train an army. And so he turns out, I would argue, to be an excellent choice as Treasury Secretary. Washington nominates him for that position on September 11th, 1789, uh, and he's confirmed by the Senate that day. Hmm. What are the main issues, financial issues, confronting the United States at that time? The main financial issues, Jeff, and this will be familiar to modern Americans, is was the nation's debt. Um, You're right, some things have not changed. (laughs) Some things things have not changed at all. Uh, It's estimated that anywhere between 75 to 80 million dollars was owed primarily to foreign creditors um, by the 13 states and the remnants of the Confederation Congress. That was a substantial amount of money in 1789. And one of Hamilton's first goals is to try to pay that debt down. 
and to establish the United States as a good credit risk in the European financial markets. And so Hamilton's proposal is for this new federal government to absorb all the debts left over from the Revolutionary War, including from those states that had failed to pay back their debts. Now, some states had paid back their debts and they resented this proposal. I believe Virginia was one of those states that had acted responsibly and now in a sense was being asked to you know, look the other way while some of the more delinquent states were taken care of by the federal government. But again, in Hamilton's view, it was critical for America's standing in the world to establish this good credit rating. And of course, for our future health and well-being, if we were to have another conflict, God forbid, we would be able to borrow the money we might need to finance that war. So the assumption plan was key for Hamilton, as was, Jeff, you well know this, the national bank proposal, which is probably going to be the last straw uh, for Thomas Jefferson, who's now back as our Secretary of State, and for Congressman James Madison of Virginia. Hamilton sees this national bank as a treasury of national wealth, uh, but for Jefferson and Madison, it's going to be seen as a force for corruption and a force further eroding the rights of the states. Uh, that cabinet was a remarkable cabinet. I mean, probably unequaled in many ways in maybe all of American history, maybe by Abraham Lincoln's cabinet and perhaps some others, but certainly one of the most remarkable. Tell us about Washington's cabinet, his administration, and Hamilton, Jefferson, and the relationships in that cabinet. It was a remarkable cabinet, Jeff, no question. I mean, we're basically just talking four individuals, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, from Virginia, Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton from New York, uh, Secretary of War, Henry Knox from Massachusetts, and then the Attorney General, Edmund Randolph. Um, fairly quickly in that small cabinet, it became apparent that both Hamilton and Jefferson had very differing views on the appropriate role of this new government, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy. So on the domestic front, Hamilton's financial proposals about the assumption plan, about the Bank of the United States, about government support to create an American manufacturing sector, all of that Jefferson found uh, dangerous, uh, saw as an irresponsible effort that would erode the powers of the states and of the common person uh, uh, and give that power to this overbearing central government. Abroad, the foreign policy of the United States was also a remarkably contentious issue. When France has its revolution, when the French revolutionaries begin to seek assistance from the United States, Jefferson was far more sympathetic, Hamilton quite skeptical, uh, and you're going to have a major battle over things like the Neutrality Proclamation, where the United States decides it's going to remain neutral in the struggles between this revolutionary government and the old world monarchies. So very quickly, Jeff, I would say uh, perhaps even by late 1790, there is a deep split within George Washington's cabinet between Hamilton and Jefferson. Washington is going to go to great lengths to try to keep those two men 
in his cabinet and to keep them talking and dealing with one another but it's a herculean struggle um the neutrality proclamation itself is such an interesting moment to me in american political life because it, as you say washington has tried to keep these factions or these two men together but here's a discrete moment where he has to make a decision what should u.s policy be toward the warring parties of britain and france the jeffersonians and his their allies arguing right we should side with france they're a fellow republic and um the the other side perhaps even the higher federalists saying we should either side with britain or Hamilton's position, stay neutral, stay out of the fight. Do you agree that it was Hamilton that convinced Washington to issue the neutrality proclamation? And, I think and tell our readers what became, because then afterwards, and many of our teachers who have been in, in, se in seminars with you will have read the terrific debate and ferocious debate between yeah. Hamilton and Madison, Pacificus and Helvidius, over this issue, which maybe to our listeners seems like a kind of um, archaic historical question, but in fact, raise very profound constitutional questions. Tell, take us, dive in for a little bit sure. for a moment, if you would, into the neutrality proclamation and the significance of that issue. Uh, and the significance, as you said, Jeff, is, is you cannot underestimate the significance of this neutrality proclamation uh, and the, the, the divisiveness of the debate leading up to it and then of course when president washington issues the proclamation uh the divisiveness continues perhaps escalates look the the question was uh, sort of twofold did the united states have any sort of moral obligation uh, to help the revolutionaries in france this was a nation that helped us win our revolution i've argued and many others have argued as well the American Revolution does not succeed without French support. We had a formal treaty with the government of France going back to 1778 uh, that would seem perhaps to obligate us to help these revolutionaries. Um, so that was one side of the argument, and that was the kinds of arguments you tended to hear more in Jeffersonian circles. Uh, it varied. Some wanted to actually get right into the struggle. Others just wanted to sort of tilt our diplomacy in favor of France. But on the other side was Hamilton saying, this is not in our national interest. It's not in the national interest of the United States to help this new government in France, which by the way, that government is not the one we signed a treaty with in 1778. We signed it with the now dead decapitated monarch. Uh, so we have no legal obligation, Hamilton argued, but we, he also argued we have no moral obligation to help the French, that in fact, nations have to look out for their own national, if you will, self-interest. And it was not in the interest of the United States to take on Great Britain and the other monarchical powers of Europe that we traded with, okay? So we would pay, our economy would pay a price. Uh, so Hamilton's argument is sort of classic realism uh, rooted in self-interest. Um, and uh, ultimately, I think, Jeff, he was instrumental in persuading President Washington to issue that proclamation saying we're going to stay out of it. Now, again, for the Jeffersonians, many of them, neutrality was seen as a betrayal of our former allies, the French. So the repercussions of this are going to exist for 
quite some time. And I should add one other thing, Jeff. To this day, the neutrality proclamation is cited by those who engage in the debate over war powers. Does the power to sort of move the United States toward a hostile situation, does it rest with Congress or does it rest with the president? Hamilton argued, of course, that it rests with the president. Some Jeffersonians, and of course, James Madison as Helvidius, argued that by Washington issuing that neutrality proclamation, he was short-circuiting the power of Congress uh, to perhaps declare war or to direct American foreign policy overall. In, in fact, I'm, I'm struck by, I think, the opening paragraph of Helvidius number one by Madison, where he says, people will have read, read these essays by Pacificus, whoever that is, <laughs> and they will have read this. And it is, I think he says, it's met with applause by degenerates among us who hate Republican government. <laughs> That's how ferocious <laughs> the debate and contentious the issue was. Jeff, it got it got so ugly. I mean, we arguably arguably live in a somewhat uncivil time these days in terms of our politics. Uh, but I, I the 1790s, the American political scene was remarkably divided. The criticism was remarkably brutal, frequently personal. And by the way, I should note, Jeff, most of the criticism, at least in George Washington's first term, was directed at Hamilton. The Jeffersonians started making the case that this old, you know, he's younger than I am right now, but this old doddering president uh, was being manipulated by this uh, uh, cunning immigrant from the Caribbean. And so Hamilton's the one that's going to take all the heat for the bank proposal, for assumption, for the neutrality proclamation, you name it, not President Washington. Uh Washington's second administration, heading in from 1797 then to 1801, does Hamilton remain the boogeyman? Less so. Uh, Hamilton resigns from the, the government in 1795. However, he does remain a key informal advisor uh, to, to President Washington. Uh, Hamilton's successor at the Treasury had been handpicked by Hamilton, Oliver Walcott Jr., so Hamilton has got his hand still in the Treasury Department, but he's also somebody that President Washington continues to turn to for advice. And you see this quite explicitly during another incredibly contentious issue, which was the Jay Treaty, which uh, again, the Jeffersonians tended to view as a betrayal of the United States by a kind of Anglo faction led by Hamilton, perhaps John Jay himself, now, George Washington is sort of lumped in with these folks. So Hamilton is advising President Washington while he's Hamilton as a private citizen. And it's Hamilton, for instance, who gives Washington some advice on both uh, the effort to ratify the Jay Treaty, which does happen without a vote to spare, and the effort on Washington's behalf to refuse to hand over materials to the House of Representatives that the Jeffersonians would convince were convinced would contain evidence of treason on Jay's behalf. So Hamilton is a private citizen, but extremely active in that second term. Then we have the fateful election of 1800. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, what's Alexander Hamilton's role in this? 
Uh, I know it's been subject, it's of course highlighted in the musical, but it's also been subject to some real scholarly contention. Yes. Yeah, so Hamilton, this is not a high point in Hamilton's public career by any stretch. Uh, George Washington dies, I think it's December 14th, 1799. Uh, and of course, we're on the on the eve of the election of 1800, which is arguably one of the most contentious in our history. You have incumbent President John Adams and you have Thomas Jefferson. Uh, challenging President Adams. Now, none of these guys are running for office. They didn't do that at this time, but these are the names that are out there in circulation. Adams and Hamilton, unfortunately, had a very contentious relationship to the point where Hamilton does something very irresponsible in the fall of 1800. He circulates a letter highly critical of John Adams he seems to have thought that the letter would be kept private, although some scholars think he knew it would get out somehow. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a, just a deep criticism of John Adams' decision-making ability, uh, even suggesting perhaps that John Adams is a little bit unhinged. And of course, the Jeffersonians just love this. It shows that the Federalists are in disarray. Uh, and Jefferson, of course, in that highly contested election, uh, will ultimately emerge as president, but not not defeating John Adams doesn't necessarily, but having to defeat his own running mate, Aaron Burr. And we won't get into that. That's another whole convoluted discussion. But again, Jeff, this is not a high point in Hamilton's career. Adams will spend the rest of his life hating Hamilton for what he did in 1800. And if I could quickly add one thing, Jeff, I don't see Hamilton writing that highly critical letter of Adams had George Washington still been alive. You know? Well, that's interesting. Why is that? Because George Washington, this is, uh, you know, I've argued uh, with my co-author, Tony Williams and others, that that relationship between Washington and Hamilton was the most important of the founding era, more important than Jefferson and Adams or Jefferson and Madison. But it's when the two are working in sync that you see their best. Washington had a moderating influence on Alexander Hamilton. Washington's political, or maybe today we would call it emotional intelligence, was far greater than Hamilton's. And I can see Washington talking Hamilton out of going forward with a letter like this that had such a potential to embarrass the incumbent president. So again, uh, I want to make it clear, I've talked a lot today about Hamilton, but none of this happens without the mentorship of George Washington. And that combination of those two, the native brilliance of a Hamilton and the judgment and discretion and prudence of a Washington uh, led to this incredibly impressive uh, relationship that changed the course of American history. Uh, I don't think we can have a conversation about Alexander Hamilton, as you say, without understanding the relationship between Hamilton and Washington. We also can't have a conversation about Hamilton without talking about his death. Yeah. yeah. Um, is it, it, is it, and was it understood at the time to be an American tragedy? It certainly was on behalf of his fellow Federalists who were devastated by what happened in Weehawken in July 1804. Um, 
However, uh, sadly, Jeff, I would say that for some Jefferson, Jeffersonians, uh, there was something of a sigh of relief. They did view Hamilton as this, Jefferson referred to him as a colossus, uh, uh, that Hamilton was the brain of the Federalist Party. Uh, so, uh, yes, there was an outpouring of grief, grief, but primarily in the Northeast, primarily in New England and New York City, of course. Um, but I do have to add, Jeff, that I think Hamilton was a spent force by 1804 when he finally dies. Um, and well, what I sorry, mean, what, what do you mean by that, Steve? Yeah, what I, what I mean by that is his best work, his greatest accomplishments were behind him. The Federalists were in eclipse. I don't see Hamilton in a position to pill, to pull the Federalists out of the tailspin they were in. I've been critical perhaps of Jefferson today, but Jefferson repeatedly outmaneuvered Hamilton and the Federalists in terms of just raw politics. Jefferson was much more adept at politics. Hamilton had something of a tin ear and that Adams letter that we just referred to is an example of that. I think by 1804, the Jeffersonian hold on the nation was not complete, but it was really starting to set in. And I don't think Hamilton would have had any major accomplishments ahead of him had Burr not killed him. Uh, nonetheless, of course, it was a great tragedy. Hamilton had planned to write a memoir and also a treatise on politics or perhaps a combined work com with both of those aspects. That's, of course, a tremendous loss to all of us. Uh, but I think as a force in American political life, as I've said, he's a spent force by 1804. Um, if you look at the legacy of Alexander Hamilton, notwithstanding his later years, and maybe this is an unfair question, but it comes to my mind based on what you were just saying. Um, do we have America without Alexander Hamilton? Wow. Fantastic question. Um, I don't think we have the America, for better or worse, that we have today without Alexander Hamilton. The only reason I'm even hesitating a bit is because I do see George Washington as the indispensable man. Uh, I've referred to Washington and Hamilton as the indispensable alliance. But if push comes to shove, of those two, Washington to me seems to be the most vital, most critical, indispensable character. Um, but it, again, I'm, this is a tough one because I see Hamilton as providing some of the and this is not a shot at George Washington, but some of the intellectual firepower behind what is what was best in what we've come to call the Federalists. Uh, you know, again, that relationship between these two very different men changed the course of American history. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, again, I'm wrestling with your question. It's a tough one. Uh, Washington's if, indispensable. If you say we don't Hamilton, have the America that we have today, um, we might have had national independence without Hamilton because we yes. had General Washington. We might have had union through the Constitution, although, as you say, he plays an incredibly important role in New York, which at that time, as then as now, is an incredibly important state. Um, but do we have a real national government? 
yeah, not just on paper, but in effect, in operation, actually, without Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, you're you're, you're making the case that I should have made, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> Even with a statue of George uh, of Je Thomas Jefferson right off my right. Yeah, shoulder. there you go. God, <laughs> God bless you for that. Um, look, um, yeah, I, I I've always argued and will continue to argue that Hamilton's um, economic proposals. Hamilton's views of judicial power, which are so eloquently stated in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton's views on presidential power, which are both stated in the Federalist Papers and as Washington's most indispensable advisor, shaped the office of the presidency. So almost every aspect of American political life, American economic life, American law would have been different without an Alexander Hamilton. So thank you for pointing that out to me, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> You've studied him so closely. Um, you you know his flaws. You know his weaknesses. <laughs> um, but you also know his virtues. What to you is the most impressive, remarkable quality of Alexander Hamilton? Yeah, I would I would argue, Jeff, that it's his. Uh, even though this was his adopted country. Uh, that very few people, perhaps only George Washington, gave more to this nation than Hamilton and did so in the face of really tough, tough criticism, personal criticism of his morals, some of which was deserved. Uh, he was not the ideal husband necessarily. Um, but, you know, personal criticism accusations of him being a British agent, which was widely accepted in Jeffersonian circles, in the face of all this questioning of the man's character. Um, he gave more to this country, again, other than George Washington, uh, I think, than any other member of the founding generation. So I'm grateful as an American citizen for all that Alexander Hamilton did for us. That may sound a little corny, a little naive. Uh, but again, this is a remarkable individual whose devotion to this nation was repeatedly questioned, but nobody gave back more to this country than Alexander Hamilton. Steve Knott, what a terrific way to wrap up this conversation on a remarkable American, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, as always, Steve, thanks for taking the time to join us. And again, to our listeners, let me recommend Steve's wonderful book, Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. Uh, it's a deeply personal account, as Steve said, but also full of deep insights uh, into the Kennedy presidency and modern America. Steve, not thanks for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you so much, Jeff. I loved our discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.